1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Even before COVID-19, online misinformation was poisoning public discourse. Now, it can be a matter of life and death. We take a look at the infodemic and discover that your political leanings can affect just how susceptible you are to the lies. And why have pedigree puppies become so pricey in Britain? Partly, the answer is that lockdowns have made it as hard for dogs to hook up as it is for humans. But partly, breeders can't vet potential owners and worry about fair-weather best friends. First up, though. It's hard to overstate how much the shipping industry means to global trade. iPhones from China, dresses from Bangladesh, soya beans from Brazil, oil from the Gulf. As the industry itself puts it, it's responsible for 90% of everything. At any one time, more than a million merchant seamen are ferrying cargo on more than 60,000 ships. But COVID travel restrictions are stopping crew members from returning home, even months after their contracts end. Hundreds of thousands of them are now stranded at sea, forced to keep working as safety concerns mount and governments dither. On Friday, UN Chief Antonio Guterres called on all countries to designate seafarers as key workers so that systems could be put in place to get them home. Today, the emergency contract extensions that have kept them toiling during the pandemic are set to expire.
2: The impact of the pandemic on seafarers has been absolutely pernicious,
1: Helen Joyce is The Economist's executive events editor.
2: They're some of the world's most important workers. I mean, if there were ever key workers, it's the 1.3 million merchant seamen who are at any one time on the high seas delivering pretty much anything you can think of. And since countries started to lock down, they've basically been shut on board. They haven't been allowed to get off. They haven't been allowed to be relieved. And at this point, there's 250,000 of them who are more than one month over contract and have no idea when they're ever going to get home.
1: So why is it they can't just go home when their contracts come to a close?
2: Well, you have to get off somewhere, and that port has to actually accept you. And the way that the global shipping industry works is that most of the people who work on these ships are from developing countries, uh, in particular India, Indonesia, the Philippines, parts of Eastern Europe. But where you do your crew changes is mostly in either very big importing and exporting nations, say America, or big shipping hubs like Singapore, Hong Kong, uh, Dubai. And so you're flown in and out to wherever it suits your ship to stop. And there haven't been any commercial flights, but also a lot of these countries have just been in strict lockdown. They're not taking anybody. Some of them aren't even taking their own citizens. Uh, So the whole thing has just been frozen. And there's been no pressure to solve this from governments because they can keep going. The cargo can keep coming on and off, even if the uh, sailors don't. So they opened borders to lorry drivers straight away when they realised this would mean that If they didn't let them cross, then supermarkets would have empty shelves. But, you know, the sailors can just keep working. So they've been basically ignored.
1: So why haven't they been deemed essential workers in the way that, for example, lorry drivers have?
2: I'd say early in the pandemic, it was understandable enough. Governments were trying to do a 1,001 things, you know, source uh, ventilators and say what shops had to close and so on. They just had so many things in their mind. But as it's gone on, now I have to say I just think it's because they can, you know, It's the the squeaky wheel gets the grease. I don't know what the nautical equivalent of that is. But these guys are just keeping working. They're keeping doing what they do. And it hasn't impacted on anyone else. So they've just basically been put to the back of the queue. And it's just really, pretty rubbish. And the morale on board ship as a result has really plummeted. I talked to a couple of sailors and to captains. And, you know, they said in the first month of the pandemic, they were actually very proud to be able to help. And, you know, they're very can-do people. I mean, anyone who works on a ship you're working seven days a week, you're doing all sorts, it's very high pressure, it's a, it's a very highly skilled job, and you know, they're proud of what they do. But after about a month, you start to think, hmm, have they all forgotten about us? And then after about three months, people's mental health really started to deteriorate.
1: So it's been out and out impossible to get sailors home? Have there been any crew changes at all?
2: So there have been some crew changes, maybe, you know, 5% of the normal, which is about 50,000 a week. Uh, and that has always involved like loads of effort, loads of coordination, loads of lobbying, and really a lot of luck. I spoke to one mariner who did actually manage to get off his ship, Captain Rashid Barve, who's an Indian, and his ship was going along the Indian coast. and they managed to call in at a port, Cochin and Kerala State, where he managed to get off.
3: I was on board the ship for seven and a half months and followed by about uh, eleven days in quarantine. And that was lots longer than you were contracted for, yeah. Oh, yes. Uh, We're contracted for about uh, four months normally.
2: It must have got very stressful after about month
3: five, I presume, on board the ship. It did. It did. At the end of four months, I was really longing to get back home uh, to my loved ones. But uh, after month five, uh, that part became less of an issue and uh, just managing this uh, totally unknown problem of uh, COVID because... On a ship, uh, the basic thing is that if one person gets it, it's highly likely everyone will get it. That stress is there, you know, when you interface with a port or go to any place where there are other people coming on board.
1: So how do, how do you see this ending? Is, is there any resolution in sight?
2: Well, it's governments that need to act. It's not the ship owners and the ship management companies who are the ones who actually make the contracts with the sailors. They are absolutely desperate to start crew changes going again, not least for safety reasons. It's not safe to have somebody working double their contracted time on a ship. You wouldn't do this in any other industry. And they're worrying that they're going to lose insurance as well on their ships when these uh, contracts that have been given emergency extensions start to expire. And, you know, insurers look at it and think this is not going to go on. The problem is it's governments that have to make this happen. There's a sort of an element of somebody else's problem about it. I think it really can breed resentment when you realize how important you are to the global economy, but nobody seems
3: to care about your well-being. The world wants the shipping industry to go on. They want the ships to move. They want the goods to move. They want to send and receive goods, but they don't want to send and receive seafarers who actually run the ships and bring the goods uh, to people and places around the world. It's like we're international pariahs, which is highly illogical because we've been out at sea. So the chance of our contracting COVID is negligible. It's a twisted way that the governments in the states are looking at it. They want all the services we provide. But they don't want the service providers, almost as if we're untouchable, so to speak. It's, I think, based more on fear and a lack of logic than anything else. Because if you see airline crews are able to fly in and out all the time and, and they have massive exposure to their passengers, to terminals, to people at home, all of that. Whereas we have no exposure to anyone.
1: And so regardless of, of the way governments classify these, these seamen, they are clearly essential workers.
2: It's actually hard to imagine workers who are more essential. They're the backbone of the global economy. And when you think the way that we're going to come out of lockdown, you know, we're going to have to queue socially distancing to get our Starbucks coffee. You know, people are going to wear visors when they're working in supermarkets. It is just not unreasonable that governments and ports work together to make it possible to do safe crew changes. These men work extremely hard, and when their work is done, they really need to be able to get home and enjoy their home lives. Like Captain Barve has done at the beach in Goa, where he lives.
3: I didn't go very far, I just went down the road, it's a kilometre and a half to the beach, and just sat on the ledge and looked at the water. I mean, though, of course, that's different from looking at the water when you're at sea. <laughs> uh, yes, I was going to say like, I don't know why you want to see the water. <laughs> that's that different. So that's work, and this is like ah, I'm on the beach.
1: For more stories that aren't in the headlines but should be, subscribe to The Economist. To find the best introductory offer wherever you are, just go to economistcom
0: offer.
1: If you were a victim of the bubonic plague in the 14th century, you might have believed any of the following so called cures sitting in a sewer, eating 10 year old treacle, or consuming arsenic. This time around, with COVID 19, things aren't all that different.
3: We're not just fighting an epidemic, we're fighting an infodemic. Fake news spreads faster and more easily than this virus and is just as dangerous.
1: In Iran, a myth circulated that the disease could be cured by drinking methanol. That led to more than 700 deaths. In Britain, arsonists have carried out more than 90 attacks on mobile phone Three, towers, two,
3: one, 5G, gone.
1: believing the virus to be spread by 5G transmitters. Whatever the myth may be, it can spread far faster and wider these days thanks to the internet. But whether or not you're likely to be fooled might come down to your political persuasion. Some of the misinformation is relatively
4: uh, mild. You know, people thinking that the virus is a bit less serious than it really is, that kind of thing.
1: Tom Wainwright is our media editor.
4: Some of the theories are more elaborate though. I mean, Gallup did a poll in 28 countries and found that in all of them, a reasonably large minority of people thought that the virus was being deliberately spread by a foreign country or other power. And there was a film called Plandemic, which was very popular on social media, which was claiming that a kind of shadowy elite began the outbreak in order to make lots of money out of it somehow.
0: It's very clear this virus was manipulated. This family of viruses was manipulated and studied in a laboratory, where the animals were taken into the laboratory.
4: Within a week, it had been seen 8 million times, and one of the people who stars in the film, Judy Mikovits, a book by her had topped Amazon's bestseller list.
1: But the key point to some of this is the speed, as you say, of it spreading online, I guess.
4: Yeah, that's right. The internet kind of changes things. Lots of countries have got rules when it comes to conventional broadcasting, so television and radio. But when it comes to the internet, it's more of a Wild West. It's less clear who, if anybody, is responsible for policing it and making sure that information is accurate. The social media companies have started adding warnings here and there to posts which they think could do people harm if it's misinformation to do with the virus. They are beginning to do more to censor people. And it was interesting, a few months ago, you got the impression that they saw this as an opportunity to introduce some moderation on a subject that they thought would be relatively uncontroversial. Mark Zuckerberg, the head of Facebook, gave an interview to the New York Times in March where he said this is relatively straightforward because some people are saying completely crazy things like you should drink bleach and, you know, who in their right mind would be saying that? But it's turned out to be harder than they thought, partly because some high-profile people have ended up saying things just as crazy as that.
0: Right, and then I see the disinfectant where it knocks it out in a minute, one minute, and is there a way we can do something like that uh, by injection inside or, or almost a cleaning? Because you see it gets on the lungs.
1: And it. I mean, I suppose it does make matters immensely more difficult when you have people in positions of authority like President Trump spreading nonsense of this sort.
4: Yeah, that's right. And one of the features this time around, which is interesting and might make things more difficult, is that it seems that the misinformation is spreading more quickly among people who identify as conservatives than it is among people who call themselves liberals. So in the States, for example, the Pew Research Centre found in March that about 30% of Republicans believed that the virus was created intentionally, which was about twice the share among Democrats. About 44% of Republicans think that Bill Gates wants to use the vaccines to implant microchips in people, according to YouGov, whereas only 19% of Democrats agree with that. And you see similar stats in the UK where conservatives are a bit more likely to believe misinformation about the virus than Labour supporters. You see similar things in France, in the Netherlands, in Germany.
1: I mean, the populist end of the spectrum does tend to mistrust authority and official sources of information. And that's certainly been a lot more to the fore in the political sphere in the West lately, I suppose. I mean, how intertwined are these things?
4: I think pretty closely intertwined. And as you say, this is a populist problem in general. It's not just a Trump thing. And I think this has been brewing for a while. And it's reflected, if you look at surveys on trust in institutions you find that Republicans have become much less trusting of many of the institutions which would normally be the sources of accurate information, much less trusting than Democrats. So if you look at the media in the United States, the media are trusted by about 70% of Democrats and about 23% of Republicans. And there's a similar gap regarding academics.
1: But equally, as the politics has become more polarized, the media themselves have become more polarized. You, you can't really give statistics about you know, how people trust the media. People trust their own media.
4: That's true. And I think there's a bit of a vicious circle here because surveys of media consumption habits suggest that conservatives are more likely to consume specifically conservative media, whereas liberals on the whole will consume somewhat more of a range of different media. And social media makes this worse still. Again, all of us know from our experience on Facebook or Twitter that you tend to see more of the kind of stuff that you agree with. And the algorithms that social networks use have made this worse because they have an incentive to steer people towards the more kind of polarizing stuff, because that tends to provoke the kind of engagement from users that generates advertising revenues for them.
1: But that polarization cuts both ways, right? Do we not see similar effects in the far left of the spectrum?
4: Yeah, we do. I mean, this isn't purely a right-wing phenomenon, but it does seem that there is a skew towards the right in willingness to believe misinformation about COVID and about other things. And The jury's still out on why exactly this is, but, I mean, a couple of ideas that people have suggested are that when it comes to people mistrusting elites, you can make a case that conservatives actually have more reason to mistrust those elites, because the elites are, on the whole, dominated by graduates. And in most countries now, the the graduate versus non-graduate divide is one in which the graduates tend to be on the liberal side of things. So when conservative populists say that, you know, the elites are captured by the other side they kind of have a point. There's another reason as well, which is that in countries that have winner-takes-all electoral systems, so the States would be one example, Britain would be another, conservatives have a particular incentive to whip up a kind of polarisation because liberal supporters tend to be concentrated in cities – Conservative supporters tended to be more spread out in the countryside. And the upshot of that is that it's easier for conservatives to win majorities with smaller overall numbers of votes. And so they can win elections just by relying on their base, whereas liberals, in order to win elections, have to reach out more to the centre. So a polarised politics works to the advantage of conservatives and makes it harder for liberals. So that could be one reason why conservative leaders have a particular incentive to encourage this kind of hyperpolarized politics.
1: So given that kind of set of incentives then, is there an argument that the misinformation epidemic that we're experiencing essentially redounds to conservatives disproportionately, that they might simply benefit from there being duff info out there?
4: Conservatives have a particular incentive to encourage polarization, and the spread of misinformation is something that is going to polarize people even more. And I I think whether they intend this or not, I think it is true that they are the beneficiaries of this, and some of them may well realize this.
1: So what's to stop it then, as this gets worse and worse? If that serves the people who have the power to continue it, to magnify it, how does this trend carry on?
4: I think it's extremely difficult. I think when the divide in society is between conservatives who tend to feel that they are outside the elite and liberals who tend to often be part of that elite you're almost inevitably going to have a kind of anti-elitist sentiment which is greater on the side of conservatives so this isn't just a trump problem this is a kind of structural problem in much of western politics
1: tom thanks very much for joining us thank you Toilet paper, hand sanitizer, flour and yeast. Plenty of things were difficult to get hold of when a lockdown was announced in Britain. Thankfully, things have changed, but not everything is back in stock.
5: Britain is now suffering from a rather unexpected shortage of puppies due to problems both on the supply side and also on the demand side.
1: Elliot Keim is our Britain correspondent.
5: It looks like mums and dads across the country have become seemingly besieged by bored children, pestering them for pets to play with, and have caved into the pressure. Other parents, dare I say it, will be looking for excuses to escape from family life, to take much longer walks than usual, for which an energetic young puppy is perfect cover. So all these reasons together mean that demand has really exploded in the last few months. The kennel clubs find a puppy tool, which is one way of measuring this kind of peculiar market, saw a 141 percentage rise in searches for puppies in April alone. But many, if not most families, will be prevented from getting hold of puppy because of developments in the dog market and just how dog breeding really works.
1: That being the, the problem with supply, I mean, what's the issue there?
5: Well, I mean, it's all kind of bound up to do with how the dog market works. So before, say, 150 years ago, a dog's breed had very little to do with its appearance and was much more to do with the work that it was bred to do. So some hunted, some worked on farms, and others ran around in cages above a fire to turn meat. And then Victorian aristocrats got involved and began to fancy them for pets. And Britain went through this rather heady period of invention that created nearly all the dog breeds that we would recognise today. But the vast majority of Brits, common mongrels remained at their sides. And this really remained the case until disposable incomes meant that those kennel club pedigree dogs became much more popular so that the old mongrels became rather unfashionable and kind of left behind. I mean... In the past decade, there's this newer trend, which is designer crossbreeds who have pure blood parents from two different breeds, and they've become much more fashionable. You might know some, the cockapoos and the cavapoos. For for two, they are outstripping their kennel club cousins on prices as well. But when demand goes up, they are just as difficult to breed, really.
1: And presumably, lockdowns then somehow preclude the the kind of breeding that would otherwise be going on.
5: Yes, when lockdown happened and demand surged, there weren't really in any position to do anything about it because the dogs who are usually set up to mate many months in advance were suddenly sitting at opposite ends of the country and unable to procreate. And another issue kind of to do with that is that dog breeders tend to be picky about their customers and they've been very reluctant to satisfy new customers who many see as being very silly in buying dogs during the lockdown.
1: Is it the case though that every single one of these breeders is is so dedicated to that idea, so scrupulous that they simply would not sell even as prices are going up and up?
5: Well, not all breeders are taking a break and many seem quite happy to exploit the boom period while it lasts. But these opportunists have been labelled greeders by other breeders who think they're turning the rather gentrified trade into a click and collect delivery service. That also means that the quality of dog for the customers has really subsided so some customers are trading down and paying more for a mongrel than they would usually pay for a pedigree there has even been a black market emerging the dogs trust uh, has warned their that criminal gangs are bringing in pregnant dogs from Romania due to Britain's quite lapsed rules on intercontinental travel during lockdown but these dogs tend to be in quite poor health uh, they have been poorly treated and have often been interbred with close relatives, but these dogs really are fetching extraordinary prices at the moment. Um, Cockapoos, for example, are now fetching about 250% more than they did before COVID-19 hit, which is really quite extraordinary.
1: And so what's the long-run picture here? Once uh, controls are reduced and the surge in demand goes away as people don't spend quite so much time at home, does the market go back to normal, do you think?
5: I think supply will eventually return to normal as lockdown eases more and more and breeders can reach partner dogs more easily and kids go back to school. But there is a concern amongst industry experts that these breeders who have stopped breeding altogether will cause supply to be limited for the next couple of years. It's also worth pointing out that disposable incomes in the recession are likely to become less common. So taken altogether, these elements really could see the return of the good old British mongrel.
1: Which I would, I'm perfectly happy with. Elliot, thanks very much for your time.